0: Well if you have your Bibles with you you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 First Samuel chapter 18 the chapter immediately following David and Goliath one of the most famous chapters in 1 Samuel 1 Samuel chapter 18. <clears throat> and let's read the infallible Word of God. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet the king, King Saul with tambourines in songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of an, of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I'll give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives that my father's clan in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mephaholite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, "Thus shall you say to David, "The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged, that he may avenge the king's enemies." Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David. To to be the king's son-in-law, before the time as they expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred Philistines. And David thought or brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. and Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, And that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Let's pray. Father, we see Your sovereign hand in raising up King David to lead Your people. Father, I pray You would give us wisdom into this text, help us understand what You are like, help us see how we can be like Saul at times, as we fear our enemies. But Lord, I pray that You would make us faithful as we see David was in this text. Lord, I just pray You would help us. and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2013, May 3rd, near El Reno, Oklahoma, the widest tornado in, re- in recorded history took place. At that time, I had just gotten into being a storm enthusiast and watching uh, live chasing events with social media. In things like this. At this point, I had already watched, uh, the NEP, or the Discovery Channel Storm Chasers series. And on this day, something happened that had never happened before. Four storm chasers were killed chasing tornadoes. This had never happened up to this point in history. This tornado was 2.6 miles wide, had wind speeds 295 miles per hour. And what made this storm unique is the way that it fooled the most experienced chasers in the world. In fact, three of the four that were killed were on a storm chasing team called TwistX. Tim Samaras was one of the leading scientists as he created his own pods that he would put in front of tornadoes that would gather data to help them understand about tornadoes. And on this particular day, they unfortunately were in a little Chevy Cobalt, a little tiny car. Usually they're in a big truck that's reinforced. But they were in a smaller car. He was with this team that he had chased with for many years. And he was known as one of the most responsible chasers there ever was. In fact, he often spoke to the younger generation and warned them about their dangerous tactics. How did he and his team end up to be the first storm chasers ever killed. Well, the problem was perspective. Perspective on the storm. Because this storm was unique. They were on the north side of the storm and this tornado started at 4.03 in the afternoon and was moving east. This is what most tornadoes always do. And they were on the north side of it. It's a dangerous side to be on, but it's a good side to view the tornado. But almost always, as a tornado gets large, towards the end of their cycle, they will take a right turn and head southeast. And they were about a mile north of the tornado, and it was moving at about 30 miles per hour. But what happened on this day was unlike any other day in history up to this point. This tornado went from being less than a quarter mile wide to two and a half miles wide in less than 30 seconds. And what made the storm difficult is perspective on it. When you looked at the storm, it looked like two and a half miles of rain. And on the outside of it, you had what they call little vortex, or it was a multi-vortex tornado. These were good tornadoes in and of themselves, these vortex, but what the experienced storm chasers didn't know is these little tornadoes that are going around the big tornado were not the tornado itself. This whole thing was a tornado. And they didn't know that it was going to make an unexpected left turn. They didn't know that these little vortexes were actually a small part of the big thing. They didn't know the left turn and they didn't know it was going to move up to 60 miles per hour almost instantly because history had never documented this sort of thing. So while this storm came upon them, they didn't realize that one of the biggest tornadoes in history was it was not just rain coming to them, but it was the tornado itself killed the three of them. Sent one passenger a quarter mile one way, the son of Tim Samaras, his partner, that had been with him for years went a half mile the other way and Tim was strapped into his car that was crumpled up in a heap. Perspective was the problem. The smartest guy probably on the face of the earth in regards to tornadoes. And yet, out of the thousands of chasers, he was the one, him and his crew, that died. They were fooled by perspective. What they were looking at was not what they thought they were looking at. And their doom came that day. Well, for Saul, his downfall is in perspective. Saul acted so foolishly as he lost perspective in light of who God is and what His Word says. What shocks me about this chapter and about what I read here is what I already know Saul has been told by the mouth of God through Samuel. You don't need to turn here, but I'll just remind you of this. Back in chapter 10, we see Samuel anointing Saul as king as prince over his people. Here's what he said. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You shall reign over the people of the Lord. You shall save them from the hand of their enemies. So God said, I am making you king over Israel. You shall defeat your enemies. Why? Because I have chosen you to do it. Well, as you know, Saul makes an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13, which brings about these words through Samuel, words from God. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You would always have a son on the throne but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out another man after his own heart, and the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the what the Lord commanded you. So now there's a clear message from God saying you're not the man anymore. You're not going to be the king anymore. You're not going to have a son on the throne. And then after he didn't ultimately destroy Amalek, as the word of the Lord told him to in chapter 15, and he grabbed onto Samuel's robe after Samuel told him the Lord had rejected him, his robe tears, and this is what he hears from Samuel. For rebellion, are in, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return for with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So here's what amazes me. Saul has already experienced supernatural victories. How? Because the Lord was with him. Well, God, was God unclear with his words to him about the fact that he had rejected him as king and that he was going to tear the kingdom from him? He was totally clear in that. And so for me as a reader, I'm sitting here saying, Saul, how can your perspective be so bad? How is this ever going to turn out for you? Your victories were obviously because God gave them to you. God made you king. God supernaturally made the lot be cast so you would be chosen. And yet, you see Saul fighting against the will of the Lord in such a foolish way that I think we all can learn from. Now in this chapter, let me just give you some of the highlights. Four times David's success is mentioned in verse 5, in verse 14, in verse 15, and in verse 30. And the reason why he has success three different times we find out is because the Lord was with David. Six different times in this text, we see the word love being ascribed to David. Jonathan loved him, the people loved him, and three times we see that Saul feared David. These are kind of the themes we see running through here. And this is my challenge to you, and all these points as we go through this text are going to be driving towards this charge. You know, why I love preaching through the Old Testament is it's such an illustration of humanity. It's such an illustration of the truths of God's Word revealed in the New Testament about what it means to trust God. And so we're going to see illustrated for us in here a juxtaposition between the one who fears God and loves Him and someone who doesn't fear God but fears man. And we're going to look at the results of their relationships So here's the charge. Fear God. For fear apart from the presence of God is the making of your enemies that will enslave you. Let me just explain that real quick. Fear God. Come to God. This is what the fear of God does. Recognizes I have no hope apart from Him. I'm accountable to Him. Fearing God is not running away from God. It's coming to Him knowing He is your only hope. So fear God in the presence of God. That's the charge. Come to God. Fear Him. Recognize Him as God, as your only hope. Four, fear apart from the presence of God is the making of your enemies the enemies that will enslave you. If you fear God the way Saul feared God, he pushed God out of his life, he ran from God, then fear raised towards man. He looked at David and he had to be afraid of him. And that which Saul feared became his enemy. He couldn't be anything other than an enemy to David because he had left the presence of God and his fear had to rise for him. This is amazingly practical for you and I. So point one in your notes, love and trust God for it will bind you together with those who who love him. Look at verses 1-5. through 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. How could Jonathan love someone else as his very own soul? That's the question. How could that ever happen? How could they have this unlikely covenant? Why is it unlikely? Well, who's to be king in Israel according to all cultural knowledge? Jonathan. He's the next king, right? He's Saul's oldest son. This is the next one in line. And then we see in verse 2 that Saul took him that day, would not let him return to his father's house. So now there's permanent service for David in the house of Saul. Then, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Here's how a covenant worked in those days. You would take an animal, you would cut it in half. One part of the animal's over here, the other part's over here, and you would walk between the dead animals. In a sense, you're saying if I break this covenant, let me be like either side of this animal and, and be cut and killed and broken apart. And so it says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan does the unthinkable. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Jonathan's robe is like no one else's robe. The only one that gets Jonathan's robe is the one who's next in line to the king. And not only that, but he also gave him his armor and even his sword And his bow and his belt. Well, there's only two swords in Israel. We know that from earlier. The king and the king to come. And the king to come gives all this royal material to David because he loved him as himself. How shocking. How can this love be possible? I will show you how this love can be possible. In chapter 14, verse 6, here's what Jonathan says. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, remember the context, the Philistine army, more than the sands of the seashore, sure destruction in front of him, Israel's hiding in caves. Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised, that he may, that it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. In my mind, this is a better David and Goliath story than David and Goliath. It's shocking. Jonathan and his armor-bearer go up against the army of the Philistines. Sure destruction. Why? Can anything hinder the Lord from saving? What an, what an amazing faith. Let me give you David. First 1 Samuel 17.26 David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Or in verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's hearts fail. Little David says to King Saul, Let no man's hearts fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Well, how could he do that? Because in verses 36 and 37, or in verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the barrel will deliver me from the hand of the philistine i'll tell you how jonathan could love david like this is because they had a common trust and love in the lord now get this your love from god is irrevocably linked to all your relationships However you are with God affects every relationship you have from the closest relationships out. They can never be separated. Ever. Love of others comes from love of God. Recognizing how God loves you in the Gospel in Christ. That's where it's going to come from very practical here. It's interesting. I love what uh, one commentator says de Graf. Here's what he says of Jonathan uh, giving David these things. This deed on his part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ who is truly Israel's king. Here's what he's saying Jonathan's not pretending like he has some amazing rights. God puts the king of Israel in charge. He wasn't pretending to claim rights. He recognized God has His King and it was not Him. You will not be able to be made the lesser. You will have to be stubborn in your pride unless you love and trust God. Then you can lower yourself. What rights do we have before God? That's a good question to ask. What rights are we going to claim in our relationships? What right? What ought to be? Well, you get down to the fundamental bottom line answer to that question. I surrendered all my rights the moment I sinned. The only right I have is to experience the wrath of God on my part. But in God's grace and in God's love, I can do what no one else can do, and that is quit pretending like I have all these rights and be able to be a servant of the Lord, even if that means surrendering your position, your high ground, and your pride. Whose kingdom are you living for? I mean, this is a fundamental question Paul David Tripp always asks a biblical counselor. He says, you're, you're living for one or two kingdoms. You're either going to live for your kingdom, and when it gets stepped on, you're going to get angry, and you're going to get frustrated, you're going to get crabby, you're going to sin. Or, if you're living for King, Christ's kingdom, you're not dep- Pretending to have rights you don't have, then when people step up on what used to be your kingdom, it doesn't hurt anymore because you recognize you've been purchased into God's kingdom. He owns you. You've been bought with the price. Here's the, here's the way Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 7:23. You were bought with the price. Do not become bond servants of men. You've been purchased. You don't need to defend yourself and your pride. So, point one, love and trust in God, for it'll bind you together with those who love Him. This is why one of the biggest tests of evidence that a person's born again is that they love the brothers. Because a heart love for God automatically transfers to a heart love for brothers and sisters. They cannot be separated. Your relationships will be affected off your vertical relationship with God. When I was in a youth group and I had a young person who I would ask them how their relationship with God is, how things were going. Well, they were disrespecting their parents, they were fighting with their parents, but their relationship with God was fine. Not. You know why? Because the authority God put over them was their parents. And there's no such thing as a right relationship with God disregarding the relationship with mom and dad. Second point, fight or glorify God For self-glorification will destroy your relationships with others. So in verses one through five, we saw this amazing reality that Jonathan loves David so much, their hearts are knit together. Sorry, I lost my spot here. And then in verses 6-9, through we see the opposite response to David. As they were coming home, when they returned from striking down the Philistines, the women were singing. (laughs) One commentator said, I bet you never knew country music made it into your Old Testament. As these women were singing about the events and this great victory. It's interesting. They're coming out to praise Saul. They're singing these songs for Saul, but because Saul is far away from God and because I think he has Samuel's words ringing in his head that God's going to raise up someone better than him, here's what we see. The women came out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy with musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. got to realize David is now a commander in Saul's army. He's going out and fighting Saul's battles. The credit ultimately ends up going back through Saul But that's not how Saul hears the song. That's not how he's viewing the situation. And it says that Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. And Saul eyed David from that day on. You want to know who controls Saul's life? From now on, David. Doesn't matter if David does good or bad to him. There's one person that defines Saul. A person. Isn't this sad? Rather than tremble before the word of the Lord, he's going to be controlled by fear for David forever. It's interesting from this point on, Saul's relationships, doesn't matter who you're talking, his relationship with Samuel is broken. His relationship with Jonathan becomes broken. His relationship with David, broken. The one who's playing music to help him is broken. His relationship with his daughter, Michael, broken. You see, Saul cannot be far from God and have good relations with anybody anymore. You know why? Because it all has to be about Him. As you get far from God, your self takes the throne. Selfishness takes the throne. He can only hear a song that's meant to honor and praise Him as a railing against Him. And you see this sad Reality, how his self-glorification destroys all these relationships. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two, thirty-six through forty, which is the greatest commandment of the law, to which or he got asked that question, and he said to them. You shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Every other commandment gets funneled down through those two. You cannot have a good relationship horizontally without a good relationship with God vertically. Third, fight or seek God for your battle is a spiritual battle. It has a direct effect on your fears and relationships. Seek God for your battle is a spiritual battle. We don't fight against flesh and blood. If you fought against flesh and blood, you might be able to go at it alone. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight a spiritual battle. And so what I'm asking you to do is to seek the presence of God. Don't run away from Him because your life's battle is spiritual. Everything you do is affected from your spiritual walk. So separating from God is absolutely suicidal. I'll show you how we see this clearly in this text. Look at verses 10 and 11. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did play day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Spiritual war threw a spear at the one trying to help you playing music for you. Your circumstances don't dictate your actions. Your heart does. And your heart can only be helped by a God who can change your heart, who can give you a new spirit, who can change you on the inside. So as Saul is hurling spears at David, now up to this point, I don't think David gets it yet. I think he views Saul as kind of he goes into crazy states. It's nothing personal. When someone's crazy, they just start hurling spears. I don't think he realizes yet that Saul wants him dead. At the beginning of chapter 19, it's clear as a bell. But in this chapter, I think you have David playing music for what seems to be a madman, but spiritual stuff is happening behind the scenes. And on the contrary then, we see in verses 12-16 through 16, that David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him. The Spirit of God was helping him. Here's how Jesus spoke of how our life flows out of us. Matthew 12.36 I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now think about this for a minute. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. How can that be? How can God look at the words that come out of our mouth during our life and have that be the evidence of whether or not we're born again or not? Or whether we've trusted in Christ that we may be justified in Him. It's because Jesus said, from out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your words that come out of your mouth do not have salt and grace and fruit in them. You know, people talk about swearing. Is it all right to swear? (laughs) careless words are going to be looked at. Careless words represent the heart of people. Your life and your problem is a spiritual problem. My only hope that I'm not throwing spears at those who love me is if somehow my heart can be changed. And as Jesus so clearly said in John 3, flesh doesn't beget flesh. I can't make my heart new. Spirit begets spirit. I need a change from the inside. And as we see, Saul does not have the Spirit of God in him, and David does, and it affects their actions. You know, one of the shocking things is is as Saul continues to try to kill David, David cannot view him as his enemy. You go and kill your enemies. David cannot do it. Why? Because he's close to God. He doesn't fear man. It's not that he doesn't ever fear man. When he does, he sins. When he does, he counts Israel. When he does... He does similar things to Saul as he tries to get Uriah killed and he does get Uriah killed as he strays from God. But for the most part, what do we see in the whole of David's life is someone who's close to God and therefore doesn't need to tremble for what anyone would tremble for. Absolutely shocking. So fight... Are Seek God for your battle is a spiritual battle. You know how ludicrous it is to wake up in the morning and not seek God when your whole life flows from a spiritual battle within? Let's be like David in this text and be close to God, hoping God. for. Faithless fear makes you slaves to your fear and your fears become your enemies. You know, one of the big common issues among Christians that they struggle with and in the area of biblical counseling is anxiety and fear. Fear absolutely can control your life. And we can have thousands of enemies that are created from our fear apart from the presence of God that we dictate our life off of. We don't have time to look in detail at everything in this chapter but you have Saul in in uh, first promise David Miriam, and then he goes back on his word, and then he says, You can have Michael in hope that David will be killed trying to get the foreskins from the Philistines for. I mean, look at how this destroyed his relationship with his daughter. It said Michael loved David. And it said, oh, that pleased her father. For now, he can figure out how to kill David. What a selfish guy. Daughter loves him. I want him dead. Sweet, you love him. Brings about the circumstance to get the one you love dead. The destructive... Reality of our lives apart from God. but here's how it ultimately ends. Up to verses 28, we just see this David's remarkably given victory, and Saul's schemes continually to continue to fail. David is humbled, and Saul is scheming. David's lifted up, and Saul's continually brought low. You know, this is just a note to think about. The reason why the Bible says pride comes before the fall is because the humble can't fall. If I'm laying on my face humbled, who's going to knock me over? There's only one thing that can happen if you're humble. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ to pick you up and raise you up in His own righteousness, in His own life, and give you a position in His kingdom. But as we stand on our own, when we try to scheme like Saul does, pride comes before the fall because we're standing. When Jesus lifts you up, that's a firm foundation. We don't fall. He's the only one that can make us stand before His presence, his, His glory. At the end of Jude, it's amazing. His final prayer, to Him who is able to make you stand before His glory. But here's what I want to point you to, verses 28 and 29, and we'll close here. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David So Saul's fear of David, look at what it says. So Saul was that David's enemy continually. Here's the link I want you to see. If you're going to fear man and you're going to fear cancer or you're going to fear, plug in your fear, you will, it will become your enemy. It will control your life. That's an amazing statement. So, David became his enemy continually. Even as David spares his life when he could kill it, even when David continues to honor him, David has to be his enemy because he's far from God. The only thing that will keep you and I from acting so foolishly the same way as if we understand the text that Dave read this morning from 1 John 4, that perfect love drives away all fear. Because when you know that God became a man, God so loved the world that He sent His Son. His Son is the God-man, and He goes to the cross, and He dies on behalf of, of sinners, so that He takes the wrath of God for what we deserve, and then He raises from the dead as an absolute guarantee we will raise from the dead. If you don't know that love, if you don't know that perfect love, then you'll fear. You'll fear death. You'll fear disease. You'll fear those who will kill the body. But I ask you, fear God run to Him and say, I have no hope except for you. I want to kiss the sun lest I be destroyed. I realize Christ is my only hope. And if you do that, what you'll find is you'll find yourself lying on your face more often, humbled, not having to build your own selfishness up and you'll find your relationships with people growing. They're linked together. Father, I pray that as we see this reality, we, we see the beginning of in this text, play on, that we would learn that we would be wise, that we would trust You, that we would be like Jonathan, have, have faith like Jonathan, Have faith like David. God, I pray You would make us so weird in the eyes of the world that we would give up our rights so that someone else may take our place. Let us be like Christ who took our place, took our sin, and gave us His inheritance, His life, and one day His glory so that we shall be like Him in His presence. Father, thank You for this amazing grace. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.